Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We meet lots of people who are trying to quit drinking. We meet lots of loved ones of people who are trying to quit drinking or are having some some success in early recovery or are battling a relapse cycle or are just trying to heal their marriages. We meet we meet lots of people and when we talk with them and work with them, Sherry, they want to hear about our experiences and because we are 5 years plus into sobriety now, We've got a success story to tell, right? Mm -hmm. But what some people I think maybe forget is I was as epic a failure as there is before we found success. Ten years of attempts at sobriety and subsequent relapses. Ten years of trying to find the right solution to keep drinking, put the right rules around drinking and change up my plan Oh, all that mental gymnastics, and I would drag you into all of it and tell you, oh, this is what I'm going to try now. This is what I'm going to try now. And so a whole decade wasted of trying to get sober and then failing for various reasons. So I definitely don't think of myself as some kind of expert necessarily on sobriety. I think of myself as an expert on failure and relapse because I did a lot of that. And so when we do meet people and they're talking to us about their reasons for trying to get sober or their spouse's reasons that their spouse is trying to get sober, there are pitfalls in their stories, things that they mention that are so similar to my failed attempts that I'm like, oh, that's that's not going to work. You're doing what I was doing back then when I was trying to quit for the wrong reasons and makes me worry about people. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I do. I mean, it's it's hard when you probably sitting in your shoes knowing what you've gone through and then you see them go through the exact same steps and you don't want to be like, you know, just doling out advice because they're not asking for it. But you're like, well, oh, I've seen that. I've lived that. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, you're right. I don't like to just give advice, but I do feel comfortable saying, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Let me tell you about the time that I tried to be a non-alcoholic beer connoisseur when I quit drinking as opposed to quitting for any, you know, personal or logical reason. I just decided, huh, I'm going to know everything there is to know about St. Pauli Girls at A. <laughs> so, yeah, I do like to, to share my experiences of failure to help people see the pitfalls. But I think... I think we could divide the pitfalls into two main categories for areas where alcoholics in early sobriety um, don't end up having success. The first one, and maybe this is specific to you and I, Sherry, maybe we see this one so often because we do work with the loved ones of alcoholics and we do work with couples, but whenever someone makes it clear, either direct through direct statement or just by talking about their priorities and talking about their pain points... Whenever somebody makes it clear that they are quitting drinking just to save their marriage, oof, that one is, that's going to be a struggle. I've never seen that work successfully. We've seen people that initially 
quit drinking to save their marriage. You know, they've received that ultimatum and their loved one is really going to go through with the ultimatum. I mean, it's clear that their loved one is going to follow follow through with what they've threatened uh, to leave or to divorce or whatever. And so that's how it starts. They decide to quit to try to try to reel that back in. But eventually, unless that person, unless that drinker changes their tune to finding real value and solace and comfort and growth and health in sobriety for themselves, bless you, then they, uh, they're just not going to make it. Got the sneezes Sorry. this morning. Yeah. Maybe it's all the cat here we have. There's a lot of cat hair around here. That's for sure. But so quitting for someone else and you know, you, you've, it, it, this shouldn't be hard to understand, right? Because you were one as almost every wife of an alcoholic is who tried to get me to quit because you wanted me to quit at certain times along the road. You would tell me I was drinking too much. You would tell me I was an alcoholic. You would tell me I needed to quit. And what kind of success did you have when you were telling me what I needed to do? Oh, oh I had a varying array of non-success. Varying array of disappointments. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, you know, there'd be arguments and you, I would be the one with the drinking problem. I don't understand drinking. I, you know. Yeah. All of that stuff. Anything where I could put the blame on you. Yeah. But so, it's not that different. When when you as the spouse wants me to quit and is trying to tell me to quit, if I were to listen to you, which I didn't, I would be quitting for you. Same thing holds true when someone tries to quit to save their marriage. They're still not quitting for themselves. They're still quitting for you. A friend of ours, a therapist friend of ours, taught us years ago that there's only one reason that people make significant important changes in their lives and it's because of pain and it's not enough for them to be imposing pain on other people it has to be their own pain the only reason people make significant changes is because they're in enough pain and that is certainly what happened in our case i didn't quit drinking successfully and permanently until the depression and anxiety was so debilitating that i barely could get out of bed and on top of that at the same time you were just done with me and you uh, you wanted nothing more to do, and I, I could see that I was going to lose you. So to say that saving the marriage wasn't a, an aspect of my sobriety would be untrue. It absolutely was. I really thought you were done and, and divorce was imminent. So I that was a, an inspiration to quit. But the pain that that was causing me, knowing that you were going to leave combining with the pain that I was feeling myself from the depression and anxiety, that personal pain that I was suffering was what made me quit and made my quitting successful. So when people share with us that they're quitting to save their marriage, it's not enough. It, I've never seen it work. Um, I don't know how it could work. We have to, to quit because we ourselves recognize that it's the right thing for us. If that marriage dissolves anyway, it's still the right thing for us. Sobriety has to have enough benefits that it is in and of itself the goal. Saving the marriage can't be the goal. It Maybe it'll be um, you know, the side effect of sobriety, but it can't be the goal. So, you know, we talk a lot about how self-esteem is the opposite of addiction. 
Self-esteem is the opposite of alcoholism. Sobriety isn't the opposite of alcoholism. Self-esteem is. If you're just sober, but you still feel full of shame and you just feel like shit, then you know you are not doing what it takes to recover. You have to feel good about yourself to save yourself and for the sobriety to be more than just dry, drunk, white knuckling, but to be recovering. And that lack of self-esteem is not only a threat for relapse for the alcoholic, but also when we feel bad about ourselves and we are in a relationship, we drag our spouse down with us. So think about, Sherry, you know, the times when I was still drinking and the sober moments after my drunken escapades when I would feel terrible and feel terrible about myself and mope around the house. You know, what kind of a environment was that for you to live in? Um, it was pretty sad and it was annoying and disappointing, frustrating. Because not only were you just, you know, still self-absorbed in your pain and misery, sometimes you would want to drag me down in it and when um, I would easily get sucked into it. So then I would be in a bad mood and then that would, you know, come across to the kids with lack of patience and um, <clears throat> intolerance for some of their typical age behavior. Or I felt like we had to, like, leave. Sometimes we would do it, you know, when you were drinking, but then I'd be like, get out of this house. Like, let's go on a bike ride or a walk or, you know, go to the movies or something or the zoo, you know, just to get away. And I was like, I have to run from my own house, so... Yeah, and there were the direct things like what you just talked about, the lack of tolerance and the the obvious easy to witness moping and sadness, but there was there was also just a tension. You know, mm-hmm. it was just a tense place to be pretty much all the time when I was a drinker. Yeah. The kids were afraid to set me off. Everyone's walking on eggshells. Just yeah. an unpleasant place to be. So that lack of self-esteem that I felt both as a drinker and in early sobriety was dragging everyone down. So if my goal is to save the marriage, but yet that's how I'm coming across, that that certainly isn't going to do any good. I mean, it doesn't make me look attractive to you, even if I'm not drinking when I'm moping around and I'm, I'm self-absorbed in my sobriety. So, you know, the selfishness continues in early sobriety. There's no question. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. We as alcoholics, when we're trying to quit, we have to go 100 miles an hour toward sobriety and we have to learn everything about it. We've got to go to meetings or do whatever our program is and pour a ton of time into it. And so you, Sherry, as the spouse, remain second fiddle, as sad as that is, in early sobriety. And there's, there's really, there's no way around that. But it's important for us to understand that that rebuilding of self-esteem is super important, not just because it keeps us from relapsing when we feel good about ourselves, but also because the damage it does to the relationship when we're moping around and we're sad and, and things like that. So tying sobriety, tying my permanent recovery just to saving the marriage, it's, you know, it's inevitably going to backfire because there's, nothing in early sobriety that is attractive or feels good to you as the spouse. I've got to want to do it for me. I've got to just want to feel better and go toward that. And as I start to feel better, I'm going to give off 
and an aura of of self-esteem and hopefully be a safer more attractive more comfortable place to be being around me and th- that's got to be the goal the goal's got to be this I'm doing this for me you can stay or you can go or you can I can stay or you can kick me out but I'm doing this for me that's got to be the reason the other big pitfall that we see from people who are attempting sobriety and this was another one that I did over and over again I want to stop drinking I want to stop having that drink in my hand but I will make no other changes I want my life to continue just as it is I want the same friends I want to do the same things with my friends I still want to go to the bar I still want to entertain and be entertained and socialize I'm just not going to have a drink in my hand (laughs) why are you laughing I'm just thinking of a couple of incidences where that was the case. Oh, do share. <laughs> well, you went to a uh, professional baseball game with yes. some friends who were quite their neighbors I, that were quite the drinkers. So, I mean, if you're trying to like make the shift of drinking is not good for me, then I don't see how you can like go into a you know socially acceptable place where just drinking continuously for you know three hours yeah it makes you feel comfortable yeah people is gonna make you feel comfortable and make you feel good i mean like i would imagine that that's a a definite uh like devil on your shoulder just the whole time or just then you're disgusted if you've had enough sobriety under your belt that you're like what is the matter with this world like this is okay you know well i'm glad you brought that one up because at the time I knew that I had a problem. I knew that I was an alcoholic and I needed to quit. But I saw that as a negative. I saw that as a, you know, I'm a weak person. I'm the black sheep. I have a deficiency. So hanging around with a bunch of people that didn't have that deficiency, although a bunch of them (laughs) had that deficiency, but who hadn't admitted that they had that deficiency and were going to continue to drink, and I'm the only one not drinking... It just makes you feel worse and worse and worse about it. The longer the night goes, even when they get sloppy drunk and you're like, ugh, they're gross and obnoxious, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. Even when you say that, you're putting yourself, you're setting yourself up for viewing sobriety as a negative, mm-hmm. as a bad thing, and that crushes your self-esteem. I can't be like all the rest of these people. Whereas when you start to feel good about yourself and recognize sobriety as a good thing, let's not run away from something. Let's not run away from not drinking. Let's run toward something great. Let's run toward the rest of my life in a healthy way with a strong and functioning liver. When you start to see it positively, you don't look at those people with envy and say, yeah, I'm I'm the one with the weakness. I, I'm the one who can't do the thing I want to do. Um, you stop viewing it that way and then it... It really solidifies sobriety quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and I just think about the how how if you say you're not going to make any other changes except you're not going to have a drink in your hand, you're not really genuinely working on sobriety in a lot of ways. Because I think that there's, there's shifts that you have to do, you know, inside your house, outside your house, inside and outside, you know perceptions. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. You know, if you're just not having the drink in your hand, but you're doing everything else, you're not making changes because you're not, look, you're viewing at it as like sort of a negative still. Yeah. 
I'm going to do everything the same. I'm just not going to have a drink in my hand. What does that say about sobriety? That says I don't value it. I want to keep doing all these social things that I've done because of the alcohol these years because that's what's important. The social thing, the environment that I'm in, and the alcohol is important. I just can't partake. Mm -hmm. Well, the shift that has to take in our mindset is that's not all that much fun. Just sitting around and getting sloshed and telling the same stories over and over again and starting to slur our words. That's not all that much fun. I know so many people who their big fear for quitting drinking is, you know, all my friends drink. So I will either lose my friends or I won't have anything in common with them anymore. Either way, that's terrifying. You know, I was terrified by that too. But slowly over time, what happens is the friends with whom you only had drinking in common drift away. But it's not painful. It's not awful. It's not like they call you and they're like, you're a loser. You don't drink. Yeah. That that doesn't, at least, you know, not with my friend group. And I can't imagine with most people's friend group. I'm sure there are some obnoxiously alcoholic people that would say something like that to someone else. But for the most part, you just don't have anything in common anymore and you drift away. And then there are friends. It's not so sad. It's not. It doesn't feel sad at all. Sort of breakup of friendship, you know? Yeah. It's like an anticipation of sadness that never comes. You're worried, I'm going to lose all my friends because they're my drinking buddies. But when you actually do start to lose them, it's not sad. Mm-hmm. It's no big deal. You just don't hang out anymore. It's And it's funny, some of my drinking buddies, a couple, not many, but a couple, I found out I still do have things in common with and still do enjoy their company and have things to talk about besides, you know, sports, politics, and what we're going to do on summer vacation, which are the only things that drunk people talk to each other about really so that's been a a real blessing to realize that some of those friends are you know people that I've got a lot in common with besides alcohol and and you make different friends you start hanging out in different places you start doing different things and the people that value you and you value them they just they just change over time and it but it's not a terrifying it's terrifying but there's no fact behind the, the scared. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end up being a terrible thing. How do you? How how has it been for you as our friend group has shifted? Because I don't drink, and frankly, you don't drink anymore either. Um, you feel like you're missing anything? No, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I think when I was mentioning, you know, there's the changes you have to make on the inside of the house and the outside of the house. One thing is that I'm lucky that I like you most of the time that I feel like our relationship has gotten better, so it has kind of supplemented that external need for just, you know, silly conversation. Like you said, that when there's drinking involved, there's not a whole lot of deep conversations, I think. But I feel like I'm much more content having a smaller friend group where I know that a lot of the things that we would do would just be surplus superficial and now the people that we work with and work alongside in our businesses are more we're more connected because there is a lot more commonality and then we can have a deeper relationship and a more intimate sort of friendships yeah i would agree with that i would agree with that totally the the biggest point about this is you most people will not find success if they are trying 
to find sobriety by quitting something. If you're trying to find sobriety by quitting drinking, by taking away something that's causing you pain, it, that's, you're not going to find lasting relief. Those are the kinds of people that talk about how still 25 years into their sobriety, they go to that weekly AA meeting every week and tell their story of their rock bottom. They are still living in that negative. And, you know, if that's what it takes for someone to stay sober, then, okay, that's fine. But that's not what I want. That I, I don't want to dwell in that negative. I don't want to run away from alcohol. I want to run towards something. And I can't emphasize enough how important this is to be running towards something instead of running away from something. Sobriety isn't some life sentence of boredom. It's the opposite of that. When your mind stops spending all of its hours on the mental gymnastics of, when am I going to drink next? How much am I going to drink? How can I keep it under control? What should I drink so that I keep it under control? Ooh, I can't drink booze anymore, so what am I going to drink to satisfy my craving? Um, oh, I don't drink on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I only I don't start till Thursday. And so, gosh, what am I going to do on Wednesday when I'm really wishing I could drink? If When you... Cl- you're laughing. You like not like that little voice I was using. <laughs> that was a pretty strange. You know voice. who that was? Is that how you talk in your head? Was that your alcohol? Sorry, folks. Park closed. <laughs> Moose outside should have told you. <laughs> that was from the original Vacation movie. Yes, John Candy. John Candy. God rest yeah. his soul. Yeah. So, but the the idea of running away from something, running away from you know, um, this, this bad, evil thing, as opposed to running toward the freedom and enlightenment well, and, and you know you the relief. The word enlightenment. Yeah. But didn't you say it was a good, it was a relief because like you said, the mental gymnastics, it just, yeah. that relief that you're not trying to figure out if the lunch place has a liquor license or not. You can just go and you don't care. That's right. You know, that's like, right. That's gotta be a, a huge amount of freedom. And then all the opportunities that open up. I'm really glad you said that. I don't know that I've ever processed it all the way to the word freedom, but you're right. We think of sobriety as this stagnation of this holding us down. We are now wearing handcuffs that prevent us from drinking for the rest of our lives. That's the exact opposite of the healthy way to look at it. It is freedom. I don't, it, and I have said this before, and lots of other people have said it too. It's not that I don't get to drink anymore. It's that I don't have to drink anymore. Alcohol doesn't control me. It, it is all about freedom. I'm glad you used that word. I've never never tied that all together. Yeah. But it's 100% freedom. I don't care where we go to lunch and whether or not they have a liquor license. I just think of like some of the stories you've told me about the stress of oh, yeah. figuring out and calculating the alcohol like consumption if we were going to be on vacation or a camping trip or you know whatever. I'm like, that just seems... Like such baggage. There's also a social freedom to it. You know, when I was a drinker, I I would always, I know to you it seemed like I was just always drinking, but I was calculating in my mind, is it socially acceptable to do the thing I'm about to do? Here's a great example. We were on a camping trip with friends once, friends that are pretty close, but, you know, they didn't drink nearly as much as I did. And I was conscious of that. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but we were having trouble, we were percolating coffee in the morning at the campsite and we were having trouble getting the water to boil and we needed some of the water for the coffee but we also need water for hot chocolate for the kids and so I said well I'll tell you what I'll do 
I'll take I'll one just, for the team. I'll <laughs> take one for the team. I'll just have a beer so that you don't have to worry about coffee for me. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. I'll just have a beer. And I brought a light beer, so it's a lot of water. Is that going to be your... Probably. But, <laughs> but in order for me to make it kind of socially acceptable, it had to be me making a sacrifice for everybody else. When really, my brain and you know everything was screaming for, oh, give us more alcohol. You're on vacation. You should be drinking. But I didn't want to drink in front of these people at 9 a.m. So, oh, I worked my way into it. So... That's where, that is the opposite of freedom. That is, you know, something is controlling you when you have to work ways around to, to, to drink at the hour of the day that it wouldn't otherwise be acceptable. And th- there's another one. I remember when we were on a trip with my parents and my sister and her family and everyone, you know, everyone in the group was, were drinkers and, and it was definitely a, um, important part of the the scene but on this particular trip i i remember it was like 11 o'clock in the morning and i really wanted a beer and at the place we were at i said well why don't i go get us a bucket of beers and i remember even my dad who's a big drinker was like well you want beer now and i'm like yeah you know i'll just i'll I'll go get and i was like mortified by the fact that i was starting too early but i guess that's what all my stories about not freedom are, are about starting too early but I was always conscious of what the people around me were doing and whether I was drinking too fast or too many and, mm-hmm. and if anyone was noticing. Ugh, the freedom from that stress is Yeah, it's such like a you're relief. under a microscope by your own doing. Well, yeah, that's right. Because most of the time, I don't think anyone was really noticing. Nobody really paid that much attention. Or cared. You know, because they were too probably too concerned with making sure they didn't look outwardly like they were overindulging to everybody else either, but... Or just concerned with anything else other than my drinking. I mean, <laughs> nobody really spent a lot of time thinking about my drinking. But yeah, there's a lot of stress about that. So it is it is freedom to work towards something great, which is what permanent sobriety is, as opposed to trying to quit something bad. So just wanting to stop drinking with no other changes, that's, that's just, it's just not going to work. It's not going to... You, you might be able to white knuckle it for some period of time, but it's it's not going to lead to health and success. There's another piece to this sobriety recovery thing that is a challenge for people. This isn't necessarily... We're, we're moving past now the pitfalls for alcoholics that are trying to gain sobriety, but there there are challenges along the way all of these programs whether it be AA our shout sobriety program smart recovery Laura McCowan stuff Holly Whitaker stuff any of them all of these programs require a certain level of vulnerability whether it is the AA mantra of let go and let god where you're turning you you know you're you're relinquishing control of something and turning it over to your higher power or it is, you know, the way we do it where we encourage people to spend some time not just talking but writing about their feelings and their experiences and then sharing them with others and getting feedback. That's a very therapeutic process. But whatever whatever the mode is, there is a requirement for vulnerability and honesty in sobriety in order for the person to get healthy. And I have to say there's a gender component to this. From the, the people that we know and have 
spent some time with, the the females tend to be much more comfortable with that vulnerability with sharing their story and being honest and open like that. And for a lot of the guys that we work with, that's just a really hard place to go. I think there's a huge societal component, you know, the whole men don't cry, men don't talk about their feelings, men aren't even supposed to have feelings, mm-hmm. all of that crap. But feelings are super important when it comes to getting sober and staying sober um, and expressing them and talking about them in a vulnerable way, openly and honestly, leads to that healing. I just we've seen so many people that can't break through that kind of a, that masculine exterior and open up and I just I worry I'm like oh this person's not going to make it this person's not going to make it because the the shell the hard outer shell that's keeping them from opening up is is the shame and the blame and you know the lack of self-esteem there's a ton of pride and relief to be found in vulnerability and honesty and until you can go there you're just keeping all your stuff pushed down and someone with a bunch of pushed down stuff is never gonna build on their self-esteem have you noticed the gender component i know that primarily you work with the females that we um, are blessed to have experience with but have you noticed what i'm talking about oh i think it's fairly apparent in just everyday life Sure. If you work in an environment where there are males and females, there is <clears throat> that ability to be um, open and honest and admit, like for females to admit they're frustrated or admit that someone is annoying to them in the, you know, in the office group that you work with. Or so I don't even think it has to be in a, you know, searching for sobriety. I think it's but not just admitting that someone else is annoying to them. Or Have it. you found that the people that you know are, you know, there's a gender component to the fact that females are better able to admit their own faults yeah. or own oh, yeah. worries and concerns as well? Yeah, and I think, I think that's just been, you know, through the generations of, you know, men have to be tough and virile. And yes, women have to be tough, but it's okay if they you know, have a soft side and like, you know, there's, yeah, I think that that makes sense. I think that they're more open to admit when they've been wrong. Women are more able to admit that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, I had an experience with someone not, not too terribly long ago, a, a male who was really reaching out and was was trying to be vulnerable was trying to ask for help and open up and was was sharing that hey you know i'm really hurting i'm struggling i'm relapsing i have periods of sobriety but then i slip what can i do what can i do and this is someone that we were working with directly and i said you know hey we we've got this writing prompt in our shout sobriety group did you write to the prompt uh no no i didn't write to the prompt but what can i do what can i do to get sober, what can I do to get healthy? Well, hey, we sent you this this question that we wanted you to address in writing and then share with the group. Did you get a chance to do that? No, I was too busy. I didn't have a chance. But what can I do? What can I do? And the point I'm trying to make by this story, certainly the last thing I'm trying to do is call somebody out. But 
you know, we, we often are looking for the quick, easy fix. We want solutions that are kind of neatly packaged. When the work is messy, the work is painful, it's hard, it's revealing. What I was trying to, to express to this person is the, the thing that, you know, you keep asking me, what do I do to get sober? Write to the damn prompt when I send you the prompt. Mm-hmm. And then get on the meeting and share it with other people. <coughs> is that hard? Yeah. Are you out of your comfort zone? 100%. But for me, that's a huge component of success in getting to this better place in recovery. That's how you shed the shame. Yeah, because by talking about it, for instance, like our the writing prompts are meant to be exploratory within yourself mm-hmm. and right. uncovering um, issues that are locked inside that has maybe driven you to drink or things that you feel ashamed about and the reason you drink or the reason you keep drinking. So you're right. The writing prompt was the is you know it's one of the um, tools. To try to help uncover and be more vulnerable and be open and honest with yourself because you have to figure out, you know, how deep the problem is and where it lies and you have to bring that up to the surface. Yeah. And that's just our technique. Other programs have different techniques. If if for you sitting with others and talking about your rock bottom moment feels like that will do the most to relieve your shame and pain, then go to AA. They are well known for that that forum Mm -hmm. but it's it it just strikes me that people want that quick fix but we are a consumer society i mean marketing instant gratification yes that's that's been part of um the american mantra for you know a hundred or so years is this consumer and we're gonna quick fix pharmacy you know pharmaceutical companies make it sound like oh, well, we have a pill for this and a pill for that and a pill for this, and let's make sure they don't, you know, um, like work against one another. So you got to take this pill to help alleviate, you know, that side effect. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's it's not a pill. It's not a quick fix. Yeah. It's work, but it's it's very highly rewarded work. Mm-hmm. I just want to save my marriage, so I'll quit drinking. There. Is my wife happy with me now? I stopped drinking. I, I, I'll, fine, I know I've got a problem, so I'll stop drinking, but I'm not going to change anything else in my life. I'm just going to do everything I've always done just without a drink in my hand. Well, you're still going to be and, the same asshole. <laughs> yeah. And. And grumpier. I want, I want help. I need help. Please help me. Please help me. What can I do? Well, I'm not willing to do the thing you've assigned to me, but what, what can I do? The, this, these are just really important examples of these are the pitfalls of early sobriety, and it's not going to work. You got to roll up your sleeves. You got to dedicate time. You got to say, not only is is this is going to be a lot of double negatives. Not only is not nothing in my life going to change. Not only is something in my life going to change. Everything in my life's got to change. Everything in my life has to change, and I'm embracing that. Until you're ready to say that. Sobriety is going to be a real, real struggle. But when you say that, and everything in your life has to change, it doesn't all have to either come all at once. Right. I mean, you do have to... Well, we have often recommended that you take a year off from social engagements. True. You kind of step out of the world for a year. And with COVID, 
that, you know, seems like that would have been made very easy, but it's, in turn, it really amplified the in-house drinking and alcohol consumption. Um, but if you can take a year off from social engagements and pressures of social um, appearances and just giving yourself a break, a vacation, per se, of the old life, and that then you don't have to, you don't have to start running 10 miles a day. Yeah. You know, to because everything has to change at once. But remove yourself and then make small changes in a day. And run, I mean, I run know. Run two miles. Yeah. And then run three miles. Yeah. Like work into it, but really kind of remove yourself from the pressure of society where you might find that you would be triggered or at a crossroads where you need to kind of make a decision and I know that happened to you oftentimes like you would be in sobriety and then something an event would happen and you felt pressure outside pressure and then you would choose to have the drink instead of just white knuckling it through for that moment yeah and and say oh we gotta leave you know yeah staying out of those social situations is really important in early sobriety I love the fact that you talked about how you don't have to do this all at once this comes over time. That ties in so well with the fact that this is the work of recovery. I got to tell you, when I first got sober, I didn't know what that meant when people would talk about, oh, you got to do the work. The only thing I knew related to, oh, you got to do the work is the 12 steps of AA. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to do AA under any circumstances. So for me to think of, oh, I've got to do the work, it, it, it wasn't concrete enough. I didn't understand. If I'm not going to follow the big book, then there was no book for me. To doing the work but that is what it's about all of the programs that exist in sobriety again whether it's our shout sobriety or smart recovery or any of these others that are out there they have you know a curriculum they've got a plan for you the work that needs to be done and if you're not willing to do it because you think it's stupid or because you think it won't really help or because you just want to fast forward to the to the punchline which is what for most people, that's what this is. It's a lack of patience, and I just want to be sober. Tell me how to be sober. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me how to get sober. Tell me how to be sober. There is no way to be sober. And sometimes, don't you think that that work in the moment is just, it's just really is kind of white knuckling through, or if you were the loved one, like holding, like for me, my work was holding my tongue and not letting the first flood of emotion come in and have that reaction, but then to quiet down and process. Sometimes the work is just sitting in that painful space for that short time yeah. and letting it pass, Have that but not, not react yeah. or not jump back into old bad habits. So that is the work. But you, brought, but you bring up a good point. We messed up the way you know, your recovery went as well because we thought of you just as like an attachment to me. So I'll do all this work on sobriety and then you'll get better too. That doesn't work either. In addition to the things you just said about you have to sit with it and be patient and not react, you also had to get a therapist and work on resentments with me and with the therapist and and anger and frustration and all of that that had built up. So you had to do a significant amount of work as well, Mm -hmm. as well as having patience. Yeah. It's a long, hard process. And you know, that's that's even before we talk about the recovery work of the relationship. Each of us needed to work on our stuff individually. And that's the part that people want to skip. 
but it's it's unskippable. If I mean, yeah, you can you can be a dry drunk and and stay married and have this miserable existence um, with no trust, no intimacy, no hope for a happy future. You can do that, and it breaks my heart when I see people that are doing that. You've got guys. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable and be honest and open up. You can't just keep it all pushed down. You got to talk about it with your spouse. You got to talk about it with a therapist or a group or whatever. But you can't just keep it pushed down and hope for this miracle to happen. It is a miracle, but it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. It's not a 30 day program. No. No. And that's where, like, I think a lot of people that do an inpatient rehab think, oh, I'm going to get out of there and I'm going to be better. And it's just, yeah, but that's really just, that's just removing you from society and kind of fast tracking. Here's all the stuff you need to do and continue to do at a slower pace when you get back out into the real world. There's no question in my mind that 30 day inpatient rehab programs would be a year long. If not for the cost, they'd be cost prohibitive if they were a year long. The relapse rate is astronomical for people that go to 30-day inpatient rehab. And then just like you said, they walk out and they're like, there, I'm fixed. That's, that's you wiping your hands. Yes. Yeah, dusting off the... I like know. to do that. I like little yeah. sound effects. Yep, I'm fixed. So, uh, you know, bring it on world. I don't drink anymore and everything's fine. Yeah. That is such a cocoon, those inpatient rehab centers. They teach a lot of good stuff. They're super important components to recovery for a lot of people. I'm not poo-pooing them, but here's what happens. You go in this place where there is no alcohol and you spend all day every day talking about not drinking. It's, you know, it's pretty easy to find success while you're there. But once you get out and the alcohol is all around you again and the stresses of life and work and family are all around you again, uh, I just I I think we have to change the mindset and it's not just the drinkers and the loved ones. Just society in general says, oh, you go to a rehab and then you come out and you're sober. <laughs> no. You go to a rehab and you come out and you're faced with the hardest thing you'll ever face in your life, that beginning part of being out from rehab. So it's, it's again, there's no quick fixes. There's no instant gratification. It takes a whole bunch of work. Last thing I want to say on that, you know, we've talked a little bit about our Shout Sobriety program here today. When we originally started our Shout Sobriety program about three years ago, in my mind, the goal was I had read statistics about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I knew that it, at least in some places it's reported as having a less than 10% success rate. So I took that, you know, those published statistics, and I combined it with my own personal bias, which is... You know, I, I wasn't going to Alcoholics Anonymous under any circumstances because of my preconceived notions based on what culture and society told me about what Alcoholics Anonymous was. And I won't get into those details now. But I didn't have a really warm spot in my heart for AA. So when we started Shout Sobriety, I thought, you know, gosh, they've got a less than 10% success rate. I've got to be able to create a better mousetrap using uh, what we know about neurological, you know, breakthroughs in science, using the brain chemistry stuff and using addiction nutrition, teaching people how to eat the right things and how that will help them recover. So I just thought having a more scientific approach, we've got to 
be able to have a better than 10% success. We've got to be able to have a 60% or 70% success, maybe 80% success rate. <laughs> this was my mindset at the time. We're going to create a better mousetrap. And what I've learned after having been in this for a while now is there are different strokes for different folks. This is one of those really complex problems like homelessness is another great example of that. There's just so many different dynamics to it that the idea that you're going to come up with a solution that's going to work for everyone, it's just not reasonable. That's not a reasonable thought process to have. So now I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what our statistical success rate is, but let's pretend like it's 10%. I'm good with that. I'm good with a 10% success rate, and here's why. If our Shout Sobriety program has a 10% success rate and AA has a 10% success rate, and so does Smart Recovery and so does Laura McCown and so does Holly Whitaker, as long as there's 10 of us out there and we all have 10% success rates, the the opportunity exists for us to cure alcoholism. For those that are willing to reach out and find help. so Not be a just lot reach of- out and find help, but keep looking even when the first thing you try doesn't work. Yeah. Keep looking. Find, or maybe it's a combination of programs. Absolutely. You know, I think that Absolutely. You know, we kind of, there's so much, you know, so much is tied to your mental state when it comes to addiction because you're just looking to self-medicate. So it might be a lot of different things that you put together. Yeah, absolutely. So when I meet someone and they are reluctant to, for instance, to write to our writing prompts and okay that's fine taking your time to warm up to the idea I get it being vulnerable is hard and then you know a month down the road still struggling to write anything okay that's okay or the reading maybe like it'll if, work out you know maybe that's just or not the a reading, reading writing in a person they're more of a but after after three or four months if you still can't write to the prompt then this just isn't a good fit for you it doesn't make you a bad person right. and it doesn't make shout sobriety a failure this just isn't a good fit you need to find something that fits what you are emotionally capable of doing. Yeah, maybe it's a physic, more physical sort yeah. of That's recovery. We haven't Phoenix. mentioned Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, a, a fellowship of people doing outdoor and and some indoor activities, mm-hmm. um, sports, recreation. And it's not a really misery cool loves stuff. company sort of no, group. Very positive, it's positive, and it's physical, and you know, you just got to find your find your niche. And hopefully, they're. They can take 10% of a population of 15 million alcoholics and help them out and be part of that solution. Mm-hmm. So it's such a complex, dynamic problem that just being a part of the solution, it truly is enough. And as someone who's in early sobriety or in long-term sobriety, but you're just white-knuckling and you're still miserable and your relationship's a mess and all you're doing is pushing down your feelings, you got to find that outlet. I don't know what it is for you, um, but it's out there. Yeah, this isn't, but keep looking. You know, this isn't 20 years ago when AA was the only solution. Right, and also don't dismiss when somebody suggests something to you. Like, look into it and, and research it a little bit yourself and not push it aside. Yeah. That's the discovery part of discovering who you are, the way you learn, and what's going to work for you, and for freedom. That's you know, right. You're fighting for your freedom. You're fighting for your freedom. You're not running away from something. You're running towards something. Find the program that inspires you to do that. And because it's worth it. It's worth the effort. It's work, but it's worth the effort. Good stuff. I feel inspired. I do too. I want to go work on something right now. 
Yeah. That sounded terrible. <laughs> I I don't know what that means. I should have stopped a while ago. You like want to go out and run ten miles now? No, I want to go like paint the oh okay the basement that area we've been working on. Hey, That's you, what I meant. You are more than welcome to go and take care of that painting chore. I'm gonna go work on something. Yeah. A distraction. That's that's even a good little thing to get you through when you're white knuckling. Just distract. Just distract. Distract for a moment or two. That's right. All right. I'll well, the one thing you don't want to do is give up. That's right. Keep searching. There's a bunch of us little 10 percenters out there that have have things that can help. So find the one that's the best fit. Don't fall into the two pitfalls of people trying to find early sobriety. Don't quit just to save your marriage. And don't keep doing the same thing you've been doing just without a drink in your hand. Keep looking until you find your solution. Sounds good. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.